The Island Digest is a sampling of the stories in this week's Journal of the San Juans, Islands Sounder, and Islands Weekly, which are on newsstands now. The August 17th edition is brought to you by Orcus Center. Headlines from the week of August 17th, 2022. Are the pollinators disappearing? Fishing vessel sinks leaking diesel and threatening sensitive areas. Dr. Lang to give talk, August 20th. CRC members sue county. Washington State Ferries get $42.4 million boost. Plus, choice excerpts from the sheriff's log. From the island's sounder, are the pollinators disappearing? by Russell Barsh. Have pollinators been disappearing? Well, like so much in science and nature, it's complicated. Quiot biologists have been studying pollinators in the island's natural areas for more than a decade, long enough to notice significant changes in plant-pollinator relationships. The islands are home to about 200 species of wild native bees, ranging from large fuzzy bumblebees and look-alike digger bees to the black-and-white-banded minor bees that are often mistaken for hornets, and tiny black ant-like carpenter bees. Apart from bumblebees, our native bees are solitary. Each female prepares and provisions her own nest, frequently just a small underground tunnel lined with something to keep it dry in winter. The other important group of wild pollinators in the islands are the hoverflies, or flower flies, which camouflage themselves by mimicking wasps or bees, although they cannot bite or sting. Flies visit flowers to drink nectar and leave with a dusting of pollen on their heads. Many hoverflies live for weeks, migrating and laying eggs along the way. Their larvae feast on aphids. There are over a hundred hoverfly species in the islands, including some accidentally introduced European species. Then there are domestic farm and garden bees, honeybees originally introduced from Europe, and some species of mason bees and bumblebees that are marketed internationally as pollinators for farms and gardens. We have seen an increase of domestic bees in the island's natural areas since 2010 and a decline in the diversity and abundance of wild native bees. We have also seen flies grow more important for early season pollination. Several factors are probably involved. Wild native bees are profoundly affected by changing weather patterns. Extremely wet, stormy spring weather damages nests, delaying the emergence of young bees and changes when flowers bloom so that many bees emerge too late for the pollen they need to feed their larvae. Flies are earlier emerging, stronger flyers, and do not have nests to provision. Honeybees have a different kind of advantage. They are housed and fed by humans over winter and emerge early. This year, the islands experienced an unusually stormy, wet spring. Early flowering fruits, such as cherries, were mainly pollinated, if at all, by flies. Native wildflowers also bloomed while the weather was wet and windy. 
Many did well, nonetheless, because in relatively undisturbed natural meadows, native bees dig their nests among the patches of plants they need for pollen. Plants pollinated at a distance did more poorly. Bumblebees emerged late this year, and while they are the island's farthest flying and most efficient wild pollinators, highly adaptable to gardens as well as native wildflowers, they missed out on many early flowering plant species, which will impact their abundance. A growing number of islanders are purchasing honeybees or mason bees, but this does not substitute for a healthy wild native bee community. Honeybees aggressively compete with wild bees for pollen and require care and winter feeding. There are already over 20 species of native mason bee in the islands that can be protected and fostered instead of importing bees that will compete with them. Importing bees risks introducing mites and viruses that spread to wild bee populations, moreover. There is a better solution. Nesting habitat is critical for wild bees, and most gardens are designed in ways that exclude bee nests and rely on fly-in rather than resident pollinators. Want to learn more? Help the Island Conservation Laboratory, Quiot, expand its Bats and Bees technical assistance program for homeowners, gardeners, and farmers. Quiot is raising money through the San Juan Island Community Foundation's 2022 County Fair Giving Campaign, which will match the first $1,000 in donations dollar for dollar. To be eligible, donations must be made during the 2022 County Fair, August 17th through 20th. Donations can be made in person at the SJICF booth at the fair, online at www.sjicf.org backslash fair, by phone at 360-378-1001, or by mailing a check payable to SJICF and dated between August 17th and 20th with Quiot in the memo line to P.O. Box 1352, Friday Harbor, Washington, 98250. From the Journal of the San Juan Islands, Fishing Vessel Sinks, Leaking Diesel and Threatening Sensitive Areas, by Kelly Balcom Bartok. The Purse Saner Aleutian Isle capsized and sank in a matter of minutes, according to eyewitnesses on the west side of San Juan Island, just north of Sunset Point, on Saturday, August 13th, just before 2 p.m., the crew aboard the vessel had been in the process of setting the fishing net when disaster struck. Long after the vessel vanished, a large portion of the net remained at the surface. Following the sinking, the United States Coast Guard released a statement, saying all five crew members were rescued by a good Samaritan as the boat submerged. Eyewitness photos of the incident as it was occurring showed the Saner's small tender boat was also on scene to assist as the Aleutian Isle sank quickly into the depths. As diesel began to seep out of what is presumed by officials to be the fuel vents on the boat, a sheen became visible along the water between the county park and Open Bay, also drifting into Mitchell Bay. According to the Washington Department of Ecology, the location of the sunken vessel threatens fragile ecosystems up and down the west side of San Juan Island, including Mitchell Bay, Open Bay, Smallpox Bay, 
and the White Point Marsh on the southeastern shore of Mosquito Pass. These environmentally sensitive areas include kelp beds, wetlands, eelgrass, marine birds and mammals, waterfowl, raptors, salmonids, forage fish, shellfish, and other sensitive resources. According to a Coast Guard press release, a pollution survey was initiated at approximately 5 p.m., and a visible sheen covering 1.5 miles was observed by on-scene personnel. By morning, the smell of diesel was strong up and down the coast, from Open Bay to the land bank property on the west side. The sheen had grown in length to several miles. At nearly the same time, official spill response was beginning to get underway Saturday afternoon. The southern resident killer whales were reported inbound off Souk, British Columbia, Canada, headed towards Victoria and the San Juan Islands. At the speed and trajectory the animals were reported to be traveling, it was estimated the orcas would be along the west side of San Juan Island and potentially in the path of the oil spill within a matter of hours. According to reports, nearly all of the endangered southern residents were present, including the new mother and baby in K-Pod. The whales were reported to have come within miles of the diesel sheen Saturday evening, but experts were relieved to learn the whales headed westbound out the Strait of Juan de Fuca early Sunday morning. From all accounts, the whales made a brief visit several miles to the south of the accident, but no observations were made of whales encountering the diesel sheen stretching for miles to the north. According to experts at NOAA, the whales dodged a bullet. Had the whales simply come up the coastline into the sheen, there could have been a very different outcome. Although the orcas could still return at any time, according to staff at the Department of Ecology and U.S. Coast Guard, our agencies are prepared to deploy authorized deterrence. These measures will keep whales clear of the impacted area under the guidance and oversight of NOAA officials should the need arise. According to NOAA, these deterrents include the use of helicopters to move at certain altitudes toward the whales to create sound and disturb the water's surface, which can motivate or haze whales to move away from oiled areas. Banging long metal pipes, called oikomi pipes, which are lowered into the water and struck with a hammer to make a loud noise, and small explosives, called seal bombs, originally developed and used to keep seals and sea lions away from fishing gear. According to David Byers, response section manager with the Department of Ecology, the incident has been federalized and funds have been made available to attempt to recover the diesel from the sunken vessel. In addition, he said, several vessels have been issued oikomi pipes if the need arises. Global Diving and Salvage has been contracted to attempt to recover the fuel, said Byers. But this is a trickier dive operation that requires two decompression chambers due to the depth of the vessel. The Aleutian Isle rests approximately 100 feet below the surface, along the western edge of a deep shelf in Harrow Strait, and is exposed to strong tidal currents. Byers said the diving operation to stop the diesel leak and recover the fuel was expected to begin Monday, August 15th, when all the necessary equipment and personnel arrive on scene.
and towboat U.S. and Department of Ecology vessels, along with NOAA and regional partners, continue to monitor the situation. From the Islands Weekly, Dr. Lang to give talk, August 20th. Ian Lang spent his career as a geologist studying volcanoes, volcanic rocks, and mineral deposits, but over a 40-year academic career, he never lost his childhood curiosity about Ice Age mammals. Among the species that made a lasting impression on him were some truly fierce and fantastic beasts, including woolly mammoths, saber-toothed cats, Colombian elephants, and dire wolves. Ever since I saw that Time Life book, The World We Live In, as a boy back in the 50s, I've had a fascination with all these different animals running around eating people and each other. On Saturday, August 20th, from 1.30 to 3 p.m. on the Lopez History Museum's grounds, Dr. Lang will present a talk on the animals that roamed North America 11,000 years ago. Families with children are encouraged to attend, and everyone should bring a blanket or something to sit on. Dire wolves, as their name suggests, were one of the fiercest and most common predators, he said, with bigger and heavier bodies than present-day gray wolves and more massive jaws and teeth. Colombian elephants, also known as Colombian mammoths, weighed about ten tons, or almost three times as much as an Asian elephant, their nearest genetic relative. They also had spectacular trunks that curved around like long lassos. Lang's talk will include a discussion of the geologic events that led to the Ice Age and an overview of some of the archaeological sites where visitors can view the skeletal remains today. One well-known kill site, where mastodon bones were unearthed back in 1977, is in Squim on the Olympic Peninsula. Except for the giant sloth, he said, all the other large predators were roaming around here. Lang himself has a saber-toothed cat skull discovered in the La Brea tar pits in Los Angeles, which he'll bring to the talk. The skull really wows people when they see the size of the teeth, he said. Lang said he also plans to discuss some of the possible causes for the mass extinction of these large predators a phenomenon he said may have parallels today. There was a bit of climate change, he said, which may have led to habitat loss. And early humans proved to be very effective predators themselves, wielding spears made from the animal's own bones. We killed them off, he said. Lang's talk is part of the History Museum's 2022 speaker series, the next will be on September 17th, with Dr. Don Charnley discussing the geology of the San Juan Islands. From the Journal of the San Juans, CRC Members, Sioux County, by Kelly Balcom Bartuck. San Juan County, the San Juan County Council, and Auditor Mylene Henley are being sued in Superior Court for taking no action on a second round of amendments submitted by the San Juan County Charter Review Commission. Following a unanimous decision by the County Council August 2nd to take no action on the proposed County Charter Amendment submitted by the CRC back in December 2021, 
Maureen C. and Sharon Abro filed a petition for correction of election error Tuesday, August 9th. C. and Abro are members of the CRC. The suit alleges the county council's decision was illegal and threatens to deprive the CRC of its role under the charter and deprive voters of their right to vote on the CRC's four proposed amendments. In question are the elected CRC representatives' terms of office, the number of submissions they may put forward during their process, what are considered final deliverables, who decides the answers to these questions, and should the county let voters decide the fate of their four measures. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking. The county auditor is tasked with preparing the ballots for the general election, and that takes time and money. But first, the court must decide the fate of this petition. That's no easy matter because the petitioners submitted a notice of judicial qualification disqualifying Superior Court Judge Catherine Loring due to her and her staff's involvement in the proceedings with the CRC. Additionally, her husband, Kyle Loring, served as a contracted attorney for the CRC and likewise is disqualified. Since receiving the case, Superior Court staff this week were seeking to expedite the suit while also finding a visiting judge to take the case, which they did Friday. The court held a brief session Friday with Island Superior Court Judge Kristen Skinner, who acknowledged an unusual proceeding, certainly. During Friday's brief hearing, the court learned that Auditor Mylene Henley had yet to be served due to her absence in the office, so neither she nor her representative were present. In addition, Deputy Prosecuting Attorneys John Kane and Amy Vera, representing the county, could not confirm the county council members were served, since they are a political body and not individuals, stating the county administrator would be the likely recipient, but no members of the council were present. Judge Skinner further acknowledged that once the affidavits have been filed, the court must hear and decide such petitions not later than five days after the filing, excluding weekends, setting the date and time of the hearing for 3 p.m. Monday, August 15. The petitioners asked the court for an expedited proceeding to prevent an election error in the printing of the upcoming general election ballots. According to the petition, the court's intervention is necessary to ensure that the general election ballot for San Juan County is corrected to include the four proposed charter amendments referred to the ballot by the CRC. The petition states pursuant to the San Juan County Charter, once the CRC referred these measures to the county council, the council had ministerial responsibilities to refer the measures to the ballot. Petitioners state the failure to do so was illegal and threatens to deprive the CRC of its role under the Charter and deprive voters of their right to vote on the CRC's four proposed amendments. Further, the petition states the law is well established that when the Charter says the Council shall place a measure on the ballot, it, the Council, has no discretion to do otherwise. If a government believes the measure is improper, it is required to first fulfill its ministerial duty and then file a lawsuit to seek an injunction. 
It cannot put itself into the judge's role and independently obstruct a measure's path to the ballot. The petitioners seek to stop the council from arguing the CRC could not submit its recommendations in two installments when the prosecuting attorney explicitly advised the CRC that it could submit measures to the voters for 2021 and 2022 to avoid overwhelming voters. Furthermore, the petition claims the council's decision not to put forth the final installment of recommendations was illegal and invalid under the Open Public Meetings Act, since the council held all of the key discussions in secret. The petitioners are requesting the court issue a judgment declaring the defendants violated the OPMA, declare the council's decision is null and void, require they take all actions necessary to place the CRC's proposed charter amendments on the November 2022 ballot, require the county to disclose to the public the nature and contents of their deliberations unlawfully held in executive session, award the petitioners with reasonable litigation expenses, and grant additional relief as the court deems just and proper. Washington Ferries Get $42.4 Million Boost U.S. Senator Maria Cantwell announced that Washington Ferries will receive $42,442,646 in fiscal year 2022 formula funding from the U.S. Department of Transportation Federal Highway Administration. The funding was secured in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, which will provide $912 million in formula funding over five years through the FHWA's ferry boat program, an increase of 128% from the amounts authorized in the FAST Act of 2015. This $42.4 million from the infrastructure law will help Washington State maintain our world-class ferry fleet, said Senator Cantwell. Over 17 million Washingtonians depend on timely and reliable ferry service annually. This funding will ensure that Washington residents and visitors will be able to stay connected to their families, their jobs, and the greater Puget Sound. Of the $42.4 million allocated to Washington State, Washington State Ferries will receive $38.3 million for vessel preservation and terminal improvements. The remaining $4.1 million will be allocated to the agencies listed in the table below. This is an increase of over $20 million from what Washington State received in fiscal year 2021. Washington State is home to the largest ferry system in the U.S. Last year, Washington State ferries transported over 17 million passengers, and for the second time ever, carried more vehicles with a driver, 8.9 million, than passengers, 8.4 million. The Department of Transportation allocated a total of $172.2 million in fiscal year 2022 funding across 35 states and three territories. Washington State received the largest amount of fiscal year 2022 funding. 
Funding from the FHWA's Ferry Boat Program can be used for ferry maintenance facilities and capital improvements to existing ferry operations in order to increase the number of riders, relieve congestion, or address environmental or significant operational concerns. Funding can also be used to purchase buses and shuttles used exclusively to transport passengers to or from a ferry trip. And now, choice excerpts from the San Juan County Sheriff's Log. On August 3rd, a Lopez deputy responded to a reported theft of a garden hose. A report was taken. A deputy on San Juan spoke with a citizen who was having an ongoing neighborly dispute. No law violation appeared to have occurred. A report was completed. On August 4th, an Orcas deputy responded to a complaint at the Prune Alley construction site in East Sound. It was reported a delivery truck driver was walking in the construction site. The truck driver was contacted and the incident was settled. A deputy on Orcas responded to an extortion complaint. An investigation commenced. On August 5th, Deputies on Lopez responded to a report of disorderly conduct. The individual was breaking their own items while remodeling a trailer. No physical contact or threats were made toward any other person. The individual said they would leave for a few days. A deputy responded to a report of vandalism in Friday Harbor. The caller reported that someone knocked over her plants outside of her apartment, spilling the dirt out of the pots. There are no witnesses, no video, and no workable leads. No monetary damage occurred, however, the caller wanted the incident documented. On August 6th, a Lopez deputy was called regarding a citizen dispute over landscaping work being done near a property line. On August 7th, a deputy on San Juan was in the market when a child was reported missing. The child was located on video surveillance walking towards an office in the store. The child was located safe and unharmed, hiding behind a clothing rack. The child was returned to their parent. A deputy on San Juan took custody of old ammunition from a citizen who wanted to turn it in to be destroyed. The ammunition was documented and submitted into evidence for destruction. A deputy on San Juan responded to a report of disorderly conduct. An individual forced their way into the theater after being told there were no more showings for the night, but then left. The victim did not want to pursue criminal charges. When the suspect was located, they ran from the deputy. This concludes the August 17th edition of the Island Digest. This edition is brought to you by the Orcas Center. Orcas Center continues to present a free summer concert series in the Village Green in East Sound running through August. Learn more at orcascenter.org. Thank you for listening to the Island Digest a small sampling of what's in your local print newspapers this week. 
The Journal, Sounder, and Weekly rely upon advertising, subscriptions, and donations to support our mission of high-quality community journalism. To contribute, visit our websites or email publisher Colleen Smith-Summers at csmith at soundpublishing.com. This is Caleb Summers, and thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for more news from San Juan County.